Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have a sponsored episode today. This episode is being sponsored by Hulu and their new series, The Great, which comes out on May 15th. So The Great is a not exactly historical series about Catherine the Great. That is somebody who previous hosts Katie and Sarah did a three-part series on back in August of 2010. Even at three parts, though, there are so many other things that we could talk about with Catherine the Great. And so we had tons and tons of ideas when Hulu asked us about sponsoring the show. We wanted to choose something that was more toward the fun end of the spectrum because The Great's tone is pretty satirical and comedic. Uh, So something else that was often comedic was the operas that Catherine the Great wrote, and that is what we are going to talk about today. (laughs) Uh, We don't want to repeat too much of what is already in the archive, but we do want to give folks a quick refresher on who Catherine the Great was, just so you have some context. In 1729, she was born Sophie Frederica Auguste, a princess from Prussia. And when she was 14, she was selected to marry the man who would become Russian Emperor Peter III. After arriving in Russia and converting to Russian Orthodoxy, Sophie became known as Yekaterina, which is anglicized as Catherine. Catherine's marriage to Peter did not go well. He was virtually her opposite, stubborn, rebellious, immature, uncultured, and ill-mannered, without the aptitude or temperament to be a good emperor. And he also humiliated her in public. They both had affairs, and it's possible that he did not father any of her children. Nearly all of their 18-year marriage took place before Peter became emperor. And during that time, he increasingly showed himself to be incapable of ruling. Then, Empress Elizabeth, who was Peter's aunt, died on December 25th, 1761. That's in the old-style calendar. Uh, That would be January 5th of 1762 under the new style. And with that, Peter finally ascended to the throne. He did not stay there long, though. Less than six months later, he was overthrown in a coup that Catherine had helped orchestrate, and he was assassinated a few days after that. Catherine took his place, becoming Empress Catherine II, and she reigned for 34 years. That made her Russia's longest ruling female monarch. Following the Enlightenment ideal of the enlightened despot, Catherine planned to modernize and reform the government, cultivate the sciences and the arts, and improve the lives of Russia's poorest people. She wanted to update the criminal code and overhaul the justice system. She established Russia's first school for girls, appointed its first professor of Russian law, and established a society to translate great works of foreign literature into Russian. Russia also expanded its industry, trade, and infrastructure under Catherine's rule. But a lot of Catherine's attempts at reforms fell very far short. During her reign, Russia was politically pretty stable, but frequently at war. She annexed most of Ukraine and took control of part of Poland after an uprising in 1794. That, of course, expanded the Russian Empire, but it didn't necessarily help the people who had just been annexed. And although she had planned to emancipate Russia's serfs, by the end of her reign, serfdom was actually more widespread. And in a lot of cases, people were living in worse conditions than they had before. 
This was especially true in Ukraine, where the peasant class lost a lot of the freedoms that it had previously enjoyed. It took almost 200 years for Catherine and her rule to start to get an honest historical reckoning. For decades, people instead focused on her 12 documented lovers, who were spread out over 44 years, and on salacious rumors about her love life. Or they wrote her off as a conniving German interloper from an insignificant family who schemed her way onto the Russian throne. Or they dismissed her as vain, as a frivolous woman who was more focused on the court's theatrical pomp and splendor than on ruling. Even though she and Peter the Great had some similar ambitions, his were praised as groundbreaking and innovative, while hers were disparaged as derivative and ineffective. There were certainly people who tried to glorify Catherine's time as an empress, but she also had a lot of very vocal detractors. Catherine was not the only Russian empress whose legacy was treated this way. Women ruled Russia for most of the 18th century. Between 1725 and 1796, four empresses were on the throne with really very little interruption between them. But that stretch of empresses was bookended by a society that was far more patriarchal. Before the 18th century, Russia's royal and aristocratic women had been sequestered away from the public, and specifically from men, in almost monastic buildings and palace wings called terums. And after Catherine's death, Russia's law of succession was changed to keep women off of the throne, including specifically keeping the emperor's wife out of the line of succession. Between Catherine the Great's death and the Russian Revolution, the Russian monarchy and society as a whole really tried to downplay the contributions of all four of these 18th century empresses. I mean, it was like these women had been in charge for roughly 75 years, and people wanted to kind of sidestep that whole idea. And those downplayed contributions by these women included their fostering of the arts, which is what brings us back to opera. Various members of the Russian aristocracy started theater troops in the first half of the 18th century. The monarchy started to be more formally involved under Empress Elizabeth, who came to the throne in 1741. And in many ways, Elizabeth's reign paved the way for Catherine's, both in terms of her rule and her focus on the arts. In general, the imperial court was also very theatrical, with state ceremonies and dinners and similar events involving a whole lot of spectacle, and with monarchs regularly hosting events like masquerades, staged equestrian tournaments, concerts, recitations, ballets, and theatrical productions. Catherine II's interest in culture and the arts started long before she became empress, and it extended well beyond her work in opera. Catherine just enjoyed writing. She was quoted as saying, quote, I cannot see a blank sheet of paper without wanting to write on it. And her written work included literary journals, fairy tales, conduct manuals, treatises on how to raise children, and an ABC book. She also wrote a series of non-opera dramatic works in the 1770s and 1780s. Some of Catherine's plays were written after the style of William Shakespeare, who really was not all that well-known in Russia yet. One such work, whose title translated to How to Have Both the Linen and the Basket, was based on The Merry Wives of Windsor. I love that title a whole lot. <laughs> 
Catherine was also interested in incorporating Western European influences into Russian culture. She brought composers from Italy and Spain to the Russian court, and some of them composed music for her operas. She was particularly interested in French literature, philosophy, and art. She kept up a correspondence with Voltaire that lasted from 1763 until his death in 1778. She also bought Denis Diderot's library, and she hired him as a librarian. She had a relationship with Baron Friedrich Melchior Grimm, who was originally from Germany, but started a French cultural newsletter and was a huge proponent of French culture. Catherine's affinity for French literature, philosophy, and culture was not universal, though. She was not as fond of Rousseau because she found some of his work to be anti-Russian. While she really, really loved more Western European culture and art, Catherine has also been described as more Russian than the Russians. She wanted the Russian arts to be Russian, not simply to be imitations of foreign work. So while she was drawing from European influences, she was also writing in Russian and working with Russian playwrights and composers. She incorporated Russian idioms and colloquialisms into her work. She also wrote specifically about Russia, including grounding her plays and stories and operas in Russian history and folklore. Catherine's work as a librettist really drew on her love of Russia and her desire to create an authentic Russian style of opera and theater. And we're going to start getting deeper into that after we have a little sponsor break. Catherine II was crowned Empress of Russia in 1762. In 1763, she had an opera house built at the Winter Palace. Then in the 1780s, she replaced that opera house with the Hermitage Theater. She also founded the Imperial Theatrical School in 1779. Opera, in particular, became the theatrical genre of the imperial court. Her fostering of theater and culture went beyond these more formal activities. She also encouraged the whole of the Russian aristocracy to become patrons of the arts. If you were part of the wealthy elite, it was expected that you would commission works of art, hire music tutors for your children, and produce creative works of art yourself. There were, of course, people who thought all this emphasis on theater and the arts was really excessive, and that it showed that the empress was too focused on the trappings of luxury. But Catherine really saw all of this as an opportunity to shape Russia as an empire. As the monarch, she had the ability to influence or even dictate Russian culture, and she could use that ability to influence how people both within and outside of Russia regarded Russia itself and her as the empress. In other words, she was using theater to create an image of herself as monarch and of Russia as an empire to present to the rest of the world. Some of this was about Russia's place among the nations. If Russia was producing great works of art, literature, music, and theater, then that was evidence that it was equal to the great powers of Europe. But it was also about educating the Russian people. 18th century Russian theater was really didactic. Stories often had a very clear moral. Heroic characters overcame obstacles and demonstrated admirable qualities like bravery, modesty, and generosity. Bad behavior, on the other hand, was satirized and mocked. So Catherine's stories and plays and operas also were reinforcing ideas of what a monarch should be and how the people should view the monarch. Some of this was to reinforce how people should treat her as the empress. It was kind of her own 
PR machine, but it was also about paving the way for her son and presumed heir, Pavel Petrovich, anglicized as Paul. She was creating works that would illustrate how a prince should behave and how a prince should be treated for him and for her other descendants. Catherine's opera skazkas, or opera tales, fit right into this. Skazka is a Russian word for story, but it is also often used to mean a fairy tale. And these were comic operas, with both sung and spoken dialogue, along with dances and musical interludes. Most of them played for the aristocracy at the Hermitage Theater and for the public at St. Petersburg's Comedy Theater. These were lighter works. They had happy endings, and they often wrapped up with the main character getting married. (laughs) Catherine thought of the opera Skazka as a distinctly Russian form of opera, equal to comic opera forms in Italy, France, and Germany. Catherine wrote the librettos for these opera skazkas, although she didn't write verse, so she left the poems and the song lyrics to her collaborators. She was still really involved in this part of the libretto, though. She usually had a direction in mind for the songs and the musical themes, and she personally selected the composers and the lyricists and then worked with them to carry out that direction. When it came to producing the performance, she also had an active hand in the costumes and the sets and the direction. A lot of times she went to multiple rehearsals and gave the actors notes. Wouldn't everyone want to get notes from the Empress? That sounds terrifying. (laughs) It does. I mean, like... I did theater in high school. I studied it in college. It was my major. And getting notes from anybody was excruciating. (laughs) But the idea of getting notes from the ruler of the country. Oh! Uh, During her lifetime, Catherine was not often credited by name when the opera was performed or when its libretto was published. But especially when it came to the performances for the aristocracy at the Hermitage Theater, people generally knew that they were watching something that the Empress had written. So chronologically, by when they were staged, Catherine's four opera skazkas were Fivey, Boslavich, champion of Novgorod, the brave and bold knight Akritik, and the woebegone hero Kazimedovich. These were performed for the first time between 1786 and 1789. All four of them tell the story of a teenage prince who grows and matures over the course of the opera, And two of them, the prince's mother is a widow who's raising him alone. And in general, the female characters in each of these operas are all women and girls who support the prince somehow. So they're the mothers, the sisters, the nurses, the nannies, and the prince's eventual bride. Fevi was first staged in April of 1786, and it was based on an earlier skazka that Catherine had written called The Tale of Prince Clore, which was printed in English as Ivan Tsarevich, or The Rose Without Prickles That Stings Not. Another great title. (laughs) It tells the story of a prince who is not allowed to travel until he has shown that he has the right traits to rule the country. Traits like modesty, generosity, obedience, and boldness. To make sure the opera's use of Russian colloquialisms and folktales rang true, Catherine got her servant, Christian Brzezinski, to review it. Count Valentin Esterhazy, who was the French ambassador to the Russian court, wrote to his wife about seeing a later staging of this opera at the Hermitage Theater, saying, quote, I have never seen a spectacle more varied nor more magnificent 
There were more than 500 people on stage, while there were hardly 50 of us spectators, even though the little grand dukes and the four little grand duchesses were there with their governors and governesses. So exclusive is the empress in granting admission to her hermitage. (laughs) Boslovich, champion of Novgorod, debuted at the Hermitage Theater in November of 1786. It was adapted from a story in Levshin's Russian folk tales. This was a collection of Russian fairy tales, but like many early collections of Russian tales, it is not clear how many were folk tales, how many were adaptations, and how many were just popular stories. Boslovich, champion of Novgorod, follows the general structure of a Russian epic poem, or Bailina. The brave and bold Knight Akritik was first staged in September of 1787. And this one is really rooted in Russian fairy tales and folklore. It features a lot of more magical elements like laches or wood goblins, Baba Yaga's in there, there's a flying carpet, and a tablecloth that magically produces a meal and servants to attend it when it's unfolded. There are other magical items in this one as well. The hero of this one is Russian folk character Ivan Sarevich, who has to save his sisters from all kinds of fairy tale peril. That sounds borderline Miyazaki. I'm in. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and lastly, the Wobegon hero Kosmetovich was a very silly satire. It was first staged in January of 1789. Its target is widely interpreted as Sweden's King Gustav III. It made its debut during the Russo-Swedish War of 1788 to 1790, and it was pulled from the repertoire at the Hermitage Theater after the war was over. This isn't the only reason that it's interpreted as being about Gustav. Catherine and Gustav were cousins, and the similarities were strong enough that Catherine's advisor, Grigory Potemkin, advised her that the show might annoy Gustav and prolong the war. The music for this one was by Spanish composer Vicente Martin Soler, who was very famous in his day, but also didn't speak Russian. So in addition to the show's really satirical tone, there was something of a disconnect between the music and the lyrics. According to one of the books that I read when I was working on this, Catherine does not seem to have really mined that, like, sort of disconnect because he was really, really famous and she was glad to have him working on the show. I think for a comic opera, it might actually also be a little fantastic to have things slightly offbeat and not quite match up. (laughs) Having like a musical tone that doesn't quite match what the dialogue is saying. It would almost be hard to do if you tried to do it without it involving people that really are not from the same culture or language background. These four opera skazkas had a lot in common, but they also fell into four different genres. Fevi was a morality tale. The Brave and Bold Knight Akredik was a magical tale. Boslovich, champion of Novgorod, was a heroic epic. And the Wobegon hero, Kazimedovich, was a satire. In the decades that followed, each of these evolved into their own genres, with their own standards and tropes within the Russian theater and opera. So these were all comic operas, but the nine operas that Catherine penned included some more serious work as well. We'll get to more on that after a sponsor break. So as we mentioned a moment ago, the operas that we talked about before the break were all comic operas, generally light, often very fanciful with happy endings, usually with the wedding. But Catherine also wrote librettos for operas that were closer to opera seria. So that's the Italian opera style that developed in the late 17th century. 
As its name suggests, opera seria tends to follow a more serious, heroic, or epic theme. Catherine's most notable work along these lines was The Early Reign of a Leg, which was situated roughly between opera seria traditions that had been imported to Russia from Italy and Russian heroic operas that developed in the 19th century. The Early Reign of Oleg was really the middle installment of a trilogy, but it was the only one of the three to be staged as an opera. As was the case with some of the operas that we talked about earlier, it wasn't specifically credited as Catherine's work when it was first performed. Instead, the script described it as, quote, an imitation of Shakespeare not observing customary theatrical laws. The Early Reign of Oleg is a five-act opera covering some of the same historical material that we talked about in our episode on Olga of Kiev. It's drawn from the Russian primary chronicle's account of the Rus, including the reigns of princes Oleg and Igor, the founding of Moscow, the interplay between Christianity and paganism, and conflicts between the Rus and the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople. So there was a nationalist element in this choice of subject matter. The name Russia comes from Rus, and this was an opera that essentially glorified early Russian history. In some ways, Oleg was a stand-in for Catherine as an emperor. But this opera also had direct parallels to Catherine's hopes for Russia. Her so-called Greek project proposed for Russia to annex the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire and revive the former Byzantine Empire, with Catherine's grandson Constantine on the throne in Constantinople. There were several parallels to this idea in the early reign of Oleg, including Oleg's defeat of Constantinople through a show of force and a play within a play drawn from Euripides's Alcestis. The music in the early reign of Oleg was the work of a team of Italian and Russian composers. It again drew from Russian folk songs, with many of its musical numbers being inspired by a collection of folk songs by Nikolai Lvov and Ivan Prok that first came out in 1790. The Lvov-Prok collection of folk songs had some of the same challenges as other 18th century Russian folk song collections that we mentioned earlier, as far as basically how to categorize the songs and whether all of them were truly folk songs. Even so, this collection, which had about 100 songs in its first printing, became hugely influential to Russian composers like Mikhail Glinka and Modest Mazorsky, as well as composers from outside Russia, including Ludwig von Beethoven. Catherine started working on the early reign of Oleg in 1786, but not long after that, she had to put it aside. Russia went to war with Turkey in 1787 and then with Sweden in 1788. So Catherine had other things to focus on. And she also recognized that the opera's themes would have more impact if they were staged after a Russian victory, or at least when victory seemed likely. When the early reign of Oleg was staged in the fall of 1790, Russia had signed a peace treaty with Sweden and had won a series of battles in the war with Turkey, which seemed to be coming to a close. It was staged for a second time in 1795, and its libretto was published in multiple editions. People who have studied this opera in more recent decades have pointed out a lot of parallels between the opera and Catherine's objectives and policies. It's really deeply connected to Russian identity and politics, and one of its themes was that Russia had been a great empire that could be restored to greatness. 
Like Catherine's comedic work that we talked about earlier, the early reign of Oleg was definitely something that she wrote for a specific purpose. It's a really good example of how Catherine chose exactly when and how to stage her operas when she wanted them to have a particular impact. Catherine's influence on the development of Russian opera wasn't confined to just the five specific works we've talked about today. She wrote other works as well, including, as we've mentioned, nine total operas and various other plays ranging from one to five acts. But beyond that, she also strongly encouraged the aristocracy, as we said, to commission and stage works of their own. Thanks to the ongoing advocacy of Catherine and Russia's other 18th century monarchs, at least 150 Russian comic operas were written in the 1700s. Collectively, these works established Russian folk songs as a major source of musical influence for Russian composers. They also lay the groundwork for combining Western musical and theater traditions with Russian culture— And they established a number of common themes and tropes in Russian comic opera, including peasants and merchants as characters, monarchs masquerading as peasants and vice versa, and comic operas that ended with a big elaborate wedding. As a more serious opera, The Early Reign of Oleg was also one of the precursors to the Russian tradition of nationalist historic opera. It also combined European and Russian musical traditions with a focus on Russian history. Catherine's comic and serious operas and the standards that they helped set in the 18th century really helped build the foundation for the golden age of Russian opera that was really more in the 19th century. In the 1820s and 30s, when various composers were describing their own work as Russia's first opera, for the most part, they were talking about compositions that had a lot in common with what Catherine and others had been doing at least 50 years earlier— These 19th century first operas, in quotation marks, also combined Russian folk music and elements of Russian history or folk tales and influence from both Russian and European music and theater, just like Catherine had done. This idea that 19th century composers wrote Russia's first operas has persisted until today. For example, a 2004 Encyclopedia of Russian History that was part of the background reading that Tracy did for this episode described Mikhail Glinka's A Life for the Tsar, which came out in 1836, as the first Russian national opera. It cited the work's retelling of Russian history with a libretto in Russian and a musical style that combined European techniques with Russian melodies, even though the early reign of Oleg had done all of those same things. 19th century composers definitely developed and standardized Russian music and opera. That happened for sure. A group of composers known as the Mighty Five intentionally set out to create a national school of Russian music, one that was uniquely and distinctly Russian. The Mighty Five included people like Modest Mazorsky and Nikolay Rimsky-Korsakov, Other famous Russian composers of this same Golden Age era included Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, and these and other people, mostly men, unquestionably produced musical masterpieces during this time. But a lot of the writing of that time made it seem as though these 19th century composers did it all from scratch, rather than building on the 18th century work that was developed and propagated thanks in large part to Catherine the Great. Like they had a quick meeting and said, we got to write musical masterpieces, you guys. (laughs) You know what we're going to do? We're going to invent Russian opera from scratch. 
a big reason for this erasure is that after Catherine's death, her opera legacy was treated much the same way her legacy as empress had been. When her son Paul became emperor, he intentionally rolled back a lot of her reforms and otherwise tried to erase her legacy. He was also the one who implemented the law of succession that we talked about earlier, which would have kept Catherine off the throne if it had been in place when she lived. It was also Paul who decided to exhume the remains of Peter III, crown them, and have Catherine's body lie in state next to them, with Catherine specifically not crowned, before then burying them side by side. Yeah, there was as much effort as possible to undo what she had done. And the treatment of her literary legacy was really similar to the treatment of her legacy as ruler. Paul and his successors destroyed Catherine's manuscripts and memoirs, although a lot of them survived thanks to copies that were in other people's possession. They also banned her courtiers and associates from publishing their own journals and memoirs. Government censors refused to allow biographical material about Catherine to be published, both to keep her from overshadowing her successors and to keep her reputation from tarnishing theirs. There was just an intentional effort to minimize her legacy overall as a writer and as a librettist. And to be clear, Catherine was not a composer. She worked with composers to create the musical elements of her operas. But the traits that came to be regarded as hallmarks of the golden age of Russian opera were all things that she intentionally put into her own work and encouraged others to do in the second half of the 1700s. It's possible that if Catherine had focused her own efforts differently in the 18th century, or if she hadn't cared about opera at all, Russian opera could have evolved quite differently. Yeah, what would it have been like if she just didn't have any of those Russian folk tales and fairy tales as part of so many comic operas? <laughs> uh, I would need to learn a lot more about, like, I would need to be a sort of total Russian opera expert, which I am not, to really speculate on that. What? You're not? No. Um, <laughs> I do love Tchaikovsky, but that's more on the ballet end of things. Yeah. Uh are, are you an expert on listener mail? I have some listener mail. Uh, when I read this listener mail, I got choked up, and then I decided to do something that choked me up more. So we're going to see how this goes. All right. Um, this is from Becky. Becky says, Dear Tracy and Holly, hi. I hope that you and yours are doing okay in these scary times. Um, we are recording this on April 21st. It is still scary. Thank you for all of the hard work that you've been doing keep, to keep making podcasts. I've really been enjoying the Offbeat History episodes, as well as all the behind-the-scenes commentary. In your April 3rd episode, you mentioned that you wanted to do a story on Emily Dickinson and that you wanted to visit Amherst and see all the places where she lived and worked. I live near Amherst, and a few years ago, I found her grave in the Old Town Cemetery. The top of her gravestone was covered with flowers and stones that people had left for her. A few people left pens and pencils on her grave, too, which I found very moving. What had the biggest impact on me, though, was that one person had copied out the poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, and wrote at the end, Thank you. It was really beautiful to see all of these tangible markers of how much her poetry meant to people, and I hope that you get to see it, too, someday in the future when we can all travel again. Till then, take care and stay safe. Becky, the reason that I'm so moved by this uh, email is because that poem is very moving, and I felt like it would be a very good thing to read in these times that we are in. And it is Emily Dickinson's Hope is the Thing with Feathers. 
Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea and never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Uh, I did that in one take. (laughs) Um, I was ready. I was standing by in case. Yes. Uh, I, for whatever reason, um, yesterday was just one of the harder psychological days of um, all of our sheltering in place and whatnot that we've been doing so far. Um, and so when I got when I re- was reading through email um, to find a listener mail uh, yesterday, this um, really got to me. And then when I was like, I should read that poem, that really got to me. Uh, but I felt like it's just obviously such a hopeful poem to be reading right now. Hopefully, when we do QA on this episode, I don't realize that I skipped a word and have to do it over again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, thank you so much, Becky, for your note. Uh, Hope everyone is taking care of themselves as as much as they possibly can. Um, At this point, this episode's coming out on May 6th. I know some places have talked about their reopening between now and then fingers crossed we're all being as safe as possible um if you'd like to write to us at history podcast at iheartradio.com and then we're all over social media at missed in history that is where you'll find our facebook twitter pinterest and instagram um you can also subscribe to our show on apple podcast and the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you get your podcasts Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.